life. How are we all doing? Good. It's good to see all of you. It's good to be in church, right? <laughs> well, I'm Shane Stillman, and I'm not the district superintendent. I understand Gene mentioned that he would be coming, Dave would be coming and being with you today, so I'm not the district superintendent. In fact, Dave reached out to me midweek, I think it was Wednesday, and said, hey, Shane, could you come and fill in for me for this Sunday at Real Life? And I'm I don't have anything going on. I'm still home. <laughs> who's, who's still home out of curiosity? There's a few of us. Yeah, still home. I work within the pharmaceutical industry, so we still have not kind of gone back to normal yet. So I'm still home. But I uh, wanted to fill in for Dave, and as I was thinking about it, uh, I wanted to figure out what is, what's the word that I could bring to you? What type of encouragement could I bring to you? And before I do that, I just simply want to give you a little bit of background of who I am. I used to be a former pastor. In fact, I pastored over in Chesterton 20-plus years ago. And uh, I'm an ordained elder in the Church of Nazarene, former chaplain in the military as well. Uh, an Olivet grad. Do we have any Olivet grads in here? We have a couple. Or at least we have my wife and I. <laughs> In fact, I recently graduated a year ago from Olivet with my doctorate, so I went back and decided to do a bucket list thing and, and got my doctorate at Olivet. Thank you. But I've been to, Matt, uh, to Nazarene Theological Seminary as well and graduated in 95, and in 95, at the end of that year, we moved here to Chesterton to pastor for a while. And uh, my son is following in my footsteps. He's actually down in Dallas right now. I'll be leaving this coming Thursday to go join him. He's attending Dallas Theological Seminary and planning for a, a ministry in full-time pastoral ministry. So we're excited for him. He actually just met a young lady. So my wife and I are very excited. It's my wife, Ann, over here, by the way. So we're excited. He's finally found some, somebody. And, and maybe there's hope. We're, we're hoping. <laughs> So let's get on with the message. As I was thinking about, you know, what, what type of encouragement could I bring to you? Um, you know, there's a, a lot going on in our world. We've been through a lot with this whole COVID thing. And it seems like our news feeds are filled with this chaos taking place in our streets, all of this rioting. In fact, this morning I woke up, it was even horrible last night, I guess. I mean, it just seems to not end. So we have this political tension that's playing out before us, and we seem to be in this hinge of history between the things that were and the things that some want to be, okay? And we're right here in this middle, and there's this tension, and I'm thinking, what can I help? What can I do? So I want to bring a word of encouragement to you this morning. So the message or the topic that the Lord gave me is this idea of joy. It's, this idea of joy has been brewing in my heart for some time, and it seemed appropriate for us to take a look at this. So the, appropriately, the name of the sermon is called The Joy of the Lord. Reading through the book of Nehemiah, we come across a passage of scripture that was meant to encourage the people of that day, and it's actually meant to encourage us even now as we consider these difficult days. Nehemiah was a leader within the Jewish community towards the end of the Babylonian exile, so we're somewhere around 538 B.C., and Nehemiah, he played a central role in helping the Jewish community or the Jewish people during the second temple period to help rebuild Jerusalem. And if you've studied Nehemiah, you know that he and the people, the Jewish people came into Jerusalem after being in exile for 500 years. They had this opportunity to return back to their home city. And they came upon the city and they saw it in ruins. Literally, the walls were torn down and the city was in such disarray that they became discouraged. The people became so discouraged and they had this heartache and this frustration and this disappointment. And Nehemiah sensed this frustration that he had. 
And he wanted to encourage the people. And so he said these words. He says, do not be grieved. Nehemiah 8.10, do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, do not be weary. Do not be troubled. Do not let your heart lose hope. The joy you seek is found in the Lord, and his joy will give you strength for the task that is ahead of us looking at this city and all the work that we have to do. These words are meant to give us hope because they apply to us as well. So do not be grieved. Do not be discouraged. Have hope and know that our joy is found in the Lord. So that is our message this morning. For me personally, as I think about that, And even all of us, this joy is rooted in our relationship with Christ because here's the thing. And if we're totally honest and if we're completely true with ourselves, there are times when we like ask the question, what joy? (laughs) What joy? Look around us today. What joy? The world is falling apart. There's tensions are high and hate seems to be the mainstay today in our society and our world as a whole. No one feels safe. Who feels safe today? Who hasn't felt like they needed to start having something with them to protect themselves? So what joy? Well, this is all true, but here's the reality. You know, giving up on joy is contrary to Scripture. The lack of joy is not part of our Christian experience, or at least it shouldn't be. I'll be honest with you, for much of my life, joy seemed to be a great mystery, and it even seemed evasive at times. Something that I thought I would never experience in my life. And if we're together again sometime in the future, I'll give you a little bit of my background and my testimony. But just know that my testimony, my beginnings were humble and filled with great brokenness. And I know all of us can kind of relate to those types of stories or have our own types of stories. But that was mine. Humble beginnings. My, raised in poverty. My dad was an abusive alcoholic. Just to give you a taste of that. So there was a lot of brokenness, and I spent many years trying to piece this together, this brokenness together, and so joy seemed elusive for me. And it wasn't until I was preparing for a message sometime back, not long ago, that this idea of joy really crystallized for me. I was doing a study on the cross and the crucifixion, and right there in the midst of that study was this incredible word, joy. And I had to pause, and I had to take in a big breath, and I had to think to myself, what is that word doing there in the midst of the crucifixion and all that pain and suffering that Christ was enduring? And it hit me. It hit me in such a way that I needed to rethink my understanding of joy. I began by asking myself, what is joy? What is is real joy? Is it a feeling, something that we experience, something that happens to us or happens within us? What is true and lasting joy? And where does it come from? What is the root of real joy? So we're going to take a look at this this morning. I think it's worth looking at this, taking some time to consider this, because I have a feeling that you can probably relate to those feelings that I had. In preparation for this message, I came across a story that I think was actually kind of humorous and kind of funny, so I'll share it with you. It's a story about an atheist, and he was walking through the woods, and he came upon uh, a river, and he was walking down a path, and he was marveling at all the beauty that was before him. So think of the, the most amazing place that you've been out in the, in the wild. 
So all the trees and all the animals and the birds and all the creatures, and he was marveling at this creation, and he was stunned by it. And as he continued along, as he was walking through the woods, he looked behind him because he heard noise. And as he turned, he saw this seven-foot grizzly bear who got his attention, and the bear was coming down and bearing down on him. So turning to look, he saw this bear, and he started running as fast as he could. (laughs) Looking over his shoulder, he saw that the bear was closing in on him, and his heart started pumping frantically, and he was running as fast as he could. And he tripped, and he fell. And as he fell to the ground and rolled over to try to get himself back up on his feet, he looked up and saw the bear was on him, and the bear was poised and ready to take a nice swipe at him. And in that moment, in some instinctive way, the atheist did something that he swore he would never do. What do you think he did? He cried out to God for help. And as soon as he completed his plea for help, time stopped. The bear froze and the forest went silent and the river came to a standstill. You could hear a pin drop. And right there in the middle of this chaotic scene, everything comes to a screeching halt and a voice from above enters the scene. And in my imagination, it sounds a lot like Morgan Freeman or James Earl Jones, you know, you know, something deep, this raspy, wonderful voice. And the voice says, uh, yes, am I to understand that you need a little assistance down there with that bear? And the atheist says, well, with this anxious plea, he says, yes. So the voice again, but you deny my existence for all these years, and you teach others saying I don't exist, and even credit creation to some cosmic accident. Do you expect me to help you out of this predicament? Am I to count you as one of the believers? (laughs) So the atheist, realizing the peculiarity of his request, he says, yeah, that would be quite hypocritical of me, and he suddenly thought to himself, well, perhaps, perhaps you can make the bear a Christian. Very well, the voice says from above, so the light went out and God fades out of the scene and the chaos of the scene returns and then with the man lying on the ground with a bear above him and the bear takes his paw and he's ready to take a swipe and he actually puts them together and he bows his head and says, Lord, bless this food for which I'm about to receive and for which I'm truly thankful. Amen. Yes. Wouldn't you agree it's... The world needs more humor. We need more laughter. I think as we get older, we begin to realize the value of simple moments. Who's been there? Yeah. The value of simple moments that bring us joy and happiness. If there's ever a feeling that describes heaven more so than another, it must be the feeling of happiness. And if there's ever a spiritual attribute that describes heaven more than another, it must be the attribute of joy. So we're going to begin there. We're going to begin by differentiating the difference between joy and happiness, because there is a difference. You see, happiness touches on a chord that is associated with our mental processes, such as the way that we think or the way that we see the world or how we engage the world around us and interact with the world and how we process information and make mental connections and associations. So this is happiness. Happiness is often rooted in our feelings, which, as we know, can change with the wind. Happiness is conditional and dependent upon things, most which are outside of our control. And so happiness is also something that we arrive to as in a physical destination or a mental awareness. That's happiness. 
where joy is altogether different. Joy is an attribute of the Holy Spirit, and it's rooted in the core of who we are as followers of Christ. Or at least it should be. Joy is less of a mental process or something that we arrive to as in a destination or an experience. No, joy is a defining aspect of the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, we read, Paul outlines for us the, the fruit of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So joy made the list of the attributes of the Holy Spirit. And you have the Spirit within you, this joy within you. It's alive and flowing because you're in relationship with God. Joy is from God and has a different experience altogether from happiness. You see, joy can be present even during our moments of unhappy times. Let me say that again. Joy can be present even during unhappy times. So if you listen closely to, the, to others as they share their testimony about their experience of conversion where they've were at one point in time so desperate or had such great heartache or suffering, and Christ broke through all of that with his kindness and his gentleness and his grace and his love, and he transformed their lives. If you listen to their stories, you will hear the seeds of great joy, reflections of great joy in the testimonies of others. King David felt God's children should sing as a result of this great relationship he says you should sing songs of joy as a response to this relationship. In Psalm 47.1, we read, clap your hands, all you people. And by the way, I loved your worship team here. Wonderful, talented individuals. My son's a drummer, so it's nice to hear uh, this young drummer and see him. But the Lord, that scripture says, David says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. So joy is part of our relationship with God. And as we praise him, our joy is directed towards heaven in praise and adoration. So not only that, but David says it's more personal than that. He associated joy with the path of life. He goes on in Psalm 1611, he says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David is telling us something that's very important. He says the very presence of God in his life brings the fullness of joy. Let that sink in. Because what a wonderful realization. The presence of God in our lives brings the fullness of joy. Remember the story of the, the lost sheep, Jesus telling the parable of the lost sheep? It's told to us in Matthew. It's also told to us in the Gospel of Luke. So it's so important it's there twice. Of course, a lot of Gospels share the same stories. But this particular story of the lost sheep is about a shepherd who had 99 safe and secure sheep. And he decides to leave the safe 99 secure sheep to go off and find that one lost sheep that is lost and alone and in danger. The story is told by Jesus, and it illustrates the depth of God's love for us through Christ. That each of us individually is so important that there's no end, there's no 
into which the Father will go in order that we might be found and saved from the faith that is before us without Christ. In this parable, Jesus is telling us something about our worth in the eyes of the Father that no matter who we are or where we have been or where we are, no matter what we've done or how far we've strayed or how uh, he, he will come for us and all of those things he will come for us and he will not stop until he finds us and returns us to the fold. You see, this is what the psalmist says when we are back in the fold and we allow him into our lives. He says that that relationship will lead to true and real lasting joy and a path to real life, appropriately named church. In fact, I don't want you to miss this because when the lost and broken are found and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there is a celebration in heaven like none other. Let's listen as Jesus concludes this story about or this parable about the lost sheep. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven than one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So it's as if all of heaven realizes that a spiritual awakening has happened in an individual's life. And within that awakening, a floodgate of joy opens within the heavens and the angels break out in a chorus of celebration. Imagine that. And Jesus says it is a grand celebration that takes place when the lost are found because the angels know the significance and implications of a heart restored and a life that is surrendered to God. And heaven thinks that is worth celebrating. David, the great king over Israel, as strong and devoted as he was, would often fail, would stumble. Psalm 51 is an incredible testimony, words of David's plea to help somehow restore this relationship. In fact, in Psalm 51.12, and I don't have a slide for it, but I want you to hear it. In Psalm 51.12, this is after the Bathsheba event, having an affair and killing Bathsheba's husband and all that. We know the story, right? It wasn't a good time in David's life, but he felt distant and disconnected from God. And these are his words. He says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore what? The joy of his salvation. Here's our reality, folks. It can be a little tough and rough down here walking around in these earth suits, these bag of flesh and bones. Today, of course, right now, our streets are filled with chaos. All sorts of pain and suffering, and there is a lostness to our humanity, and voices are crying out to be heard, and we have a lot of work to do. A lot of healing and restoring, and it begins right here in our own hearts. It begins by allowing God to do a work within us, and it begins with a simple prayer, much like David's, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I mentioned earlier this connection between Jesus' suffering and joy. Let me ask you, have you made this connection? When you think of the cross, do you think of joy? I know for a long period of time I didn't. 
I mean, you think about it. The cross in itself is very solemn. It's very dark. It's very, it, it means death, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of the cross. In fact, the Romans used the cross as a form of death and a very public form of death because they wanted to make sure that what you did would never be repeated. So they wanted to put you on display. It is the most shameful and public way that a person can die, could die during that period of time. Think about it. You're hanging on a tree. You're either outside the city gates or you're out on a hill, as in Jesus' case, or you're along the road. They would have these crosses spread along the road so that people could walk by and you would sense and feel their scorn and their ridicule. It was horrific and filled with such great shame. So no, when we think of the cross, we typically don't think of joy. But I think there is a very important lesson for us and this whole topic of joy if we look to the cross. And this is the, these are the verses I really, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. If you have your device, I want you to turn there. So I really want you to grasp these verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 11, the writer, the author, outlines this wonderful hall of spiritual faith. Those who have gone before that have demonstrated, demonstrated and modeled faith. Moses is included within that group, for example. So chapter 11 is filled with these great leaders of the faith. And he comes to chapter 12, and he's trying to encourage the listeners. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by all these great individuals, by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And as we're running, looking to Jesus, fixate your eyes upon Jesus, who is the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right there, it hit me. The word joy and the cross together. And it hit me. He endured all this pain and all this suffering and humiliation, humiliation, and right in the middle of that is joy. Wow. Joy as if it were a prize waiting to be grasped. Joy as if it waited on the other side of death. Joy as if it possessed a reality far greater than the pain Jesus was enduring on the cross. I want to get philosophical for a few moments, and don't worry, theologians agree with what I'm going to share with you, so I'm not straying too far away. And by, by the way, I do have a Master of Divinity as well, so I've studied some theology, so I would never lead you astray. But I want to get philosophical for a few moments, because what I, I want us to drill down. I think there's something very personal here. Why did Jesus experience joy while hanging upon the cross? It's worth us looking at, right? Could it be that Jesus knew that the work that began in the garden after the fall of Adam and Eve, this great work of redemption to redeem a fallen people that began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and was personified with Moses and the Israelites in captivity and being brought out of captivity and being set free and going into the promised land, the story of the Old and New Testament, could it be this was all weaved together, this redemptive plan of salvation, that it finds its culmination in the cross. These were the last words of Jesus, his last words that he said with his last breath as he died upon the cross. He said, it is finished. 
What is finished? It is finished. And this brought him great joy. Through the work of the cross, the redemption of humankind was complete. The making of all things new was complete. He promised that he would help us and that he would see us through. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 41. Be encouraged by these verses. He says, for I am the Lord speaking to us. I am your Lord, your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So it is finished. And there on the cross, Jesus looked beyond the suffering to a vision of heaven, to his home and to our home, and all the beauty therein, and it filled his heart with joy. The joy of a work completed, of a people restored, of a gateway opened, and now a return to the throne of the kingdom of God. And this throne awaited him, and it brought him great joy. You see, Jesus was entering back into the story where he, has, where he is the king who has all power and all dominion and all authority over all things. And he was entering back into that state versus the state of humanity. I'm a big fan of Peter, but sometimes I feel Peter gets overshadowed by Paul. I mean, Paul wrote how many epistles, letters in the New Testament. He wrote 13 epistles compared to Peter's two in the New Testament. So Paul gets a lot of attention. In fact, the most of the book of Acts is about Paul as well. Peter gets a little, the short end of the theological stick, if you will. He does, he kind of gets overlooked. But let me say Peter got it. As slow as at times that he appears to be, Peter got it and Jesus knew it. There's a reason why Peter is considered the rock of the church. You see, Peter understood what awaits believers in the next life. That it is something so incredible and so amazing. Perhaps this understanding was in, embodied for him or personified for him as he and John and James, when he went with Jesus outside the city gates up on the, the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, where Peter was able to see Jesus transformed into this marvelous radiant light. And Peter was able to see heaven itself open up and hear the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Perhaps this informed his perspective. And Peter wrote some amazing words. I want to share those with you. First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If you have notes, these are great verses to, to note. He says, Though you have not seen him, meaning you've not seen Jesus in the flesh, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So what Peter is telling us is that there's a joy so deep and so amazing and so real that it's inexpressible when we come to terms with it. This deep joy speaks a language all of its own, and it surpasses our emotions and our, surpasses our mental capacities, and it penetrates deep within our hearts, and it takes our heart, and it, and it merges with God's heart. And in that moment, we become speechless. 
Have you ever had those moments in your walk with the Lord where you just have these intense moments of spiritual awareness? And you're speechless. You're just overwhelmed with God's love and his grace and how amazing those feelings are. This is what Peter was telling us. Of course, like every great story, you know, our story has an arch enemy. And as believers, of course, we have an enemy in the story. John 10.10, Jesus actually describes this enemy to to us, or his mission anyway. He says, this enemy has come to uh, still kill and destroy. And it's killing dreams and stealing people's identities and destroying their hopes. So Satan's turn is to desire is to turn us against each other, which we're seeing in our streets today. But I think even more importantly, his desire is to see us turn against ourselves. To make it so that when we look into the mirror that we're not happy with what we see. That we hate ourselves. That we lose perspective. We lose the foundation of who we are in Christ. You see, the enemy's goal is to keep us focused on the shame and the guilt and the fear. To focus on what is lacking. You do know that the ultimate goal of this enemy is to rob you of your joy. And when the enemy undermines our joy and ability to see clearly by keeping the focus on us, we in turn undermine the power and presence of Christ within us. And the result is we live defeated lives and miss the blessings that we've been given. You see, the heart of the problem is that we've been given so much but we settle for so little because we feel like we don't deserve it. Bill Johnson, the pastor of the popular Bethel Church, speaks of this issue, and if you like Bethel music, this is that church. The pastor says, now when we don't realize what we already have, we end up spending our prayer life praying for that which we already have ownership of. And when you pray for that which you already have, you cannot recognize the power you already possess, nor can you embrace the answer to your prayer, for it is already part of your existence, your current reality. You just don't realize it. What he's saying, in a sense, is this, that we already possess so much power, so many blessings, so many resources from the throne of God. When we pray for those things that we already have, we become numb to those things. And we become numb to the power that these blessings possess in our lives. You know what I'm talking about? So it's important that you stay with me, because this is the point. If I cannot recognize the answer to my prayer then I'm not going to have joy and thankfulness when God moves in my life. And see, Jesus tells us that if you ask for anything in my name, what does he say? I will do it. We have this power. And on this topic of joy, Jesus had a few words for us as well. He's sharing all these wonderful, encouraging words. And he says in John 15, 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. So you see, Jesus fully intends to share with us the joy that sustained him on the cross. And his desire for each of us is that our joy is made complete. 
Did you catch what he says? He says, in spite of all the skeptics, everything that people say against us today, those who follow Christ, in spite of all that, Jesus is not holding out on us. Paul reminds us that in Colossians, he says these words in Colossians chapter 3, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I wish I could unpack these verses with you. There's a lot there. But essentially, he's saying our joy begins when we set our minds on heaven, not on earth. And in so doing, we will have inexpressible joy. So, folks, I hope you've been encouraged a little bit by this time and by these words to encourage you to focus on where joy comes from. It is within you. It's part of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is alive within you. So embrace it. So let's take a few moments of prayer, but I want to thank you for allowing me to be with you today. Maybe we'll have an opportunity to come back at some point, but thank you for allowing me to be here. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to be with real life, your church. It is such a privilege and such an honor to celebrate uh, you with them. And Father, on this whole topic of joy, boy, do we ever need a reminder of where true joy comes from. It comes from you. It's part of who you are, and you've given us this joy. So let us embrace it. Let us nurture it and, and grow it and embody these words that Jesus said. He goes, I've given you my joy so that you might feel it and experience it in its fullness. So Father, make that real for us today. We want to praise you and give you thanks and ask that you go with us from this place and keep us safe and pull this world back together, Lord. In your holy and precious name, amen.